Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this uh, chilly, wintry day, but thankfully uh, the weather cooperating far better than it did last week. Uh, I was struck this morning listening to NPR about the context of theology and the recognition that theology develops out of lived experience. So there's no question, for example, for ancient Israel that their theology is grounded in the exodus, what it meant to have been slaves in Egypt and set free by God and sent on a journey. No question for the church of the Reformation to be grounded in a theology breaking away from the established church of Rome. So we ought not be surprised, in fact, we ought to celebrate the fact that the unique experience of being a person of color in this country brings with it a perspective on theology, a perspective on the nature of God and our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. One of the preeminent uh, theologians in uh, the history of black theology is uh, James Cone, and we happen to be privileged today to have uh, an expert on the theology of uh, Dr. Cone with us, Professor Ben Sanders from Eden Seminary, good friend, uh, impeccably gifted scholar, uh, who will share with us uh, where black theology has been in terms of its development uh, and uh, journey, uh, where its place is in American society, and how it might be called on to shape us in the future. So please join me in walking, welcoming dear friend Ben Sanders. Good morning. Thank you very much, Mark, for that gracious uh, introduction. It is my pleasure to be here with you all this morning, to um, both to, to be with you in worship. Uh, thank you for letting me preach this morning. Um, uh, I hope I didn't preach too long. I tried not to. Uh, as, as, I, as, I'd said, uh, to um, as I said to, to, to Reverend Mike in an email response uh, in preparation to being here with you all this morning, 12 to 15 minutes, that's like a Baptist introduction, but I will, uh, I said, I said I, will, I will work with it. So, so thank you all for, for uh, bearing with me this morning, and thank you for, um, uh, for being here now to talk about black theology. It is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. In fact, I don't know um, that I would be uh, a, a minister. I don't know that I would be ordained. I don't know that I would be a Christian. Was it not for... Um, uh, the really formative and impactful teaching of some of my teachers uh, in college as a way of finding our way into black theology this morning as a, as a subject. Um, let me tell you a little bit about my own journey in relationship to it. When I was uh, 18 or 19, so I was a college freshman on my way to being a college sophomore, I was, uh, I'd somehow found my way to Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Hope is a reformed school, a predominantly white school in Holland, Michigan. So I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, so it's on the other side of Lake Michigan. And so uh, I was there, and I was a Christian, which is one of the reasons I chose Hope. Um, and, um, and while I was there, I, for the first time, uh, because Evanston is a really sort of almost idyllically diverse city on the, in the northern suburbs of Chicago, and for the first time in my life, I could feel the whiteness pressing in on me. And I could feel that whiteness had a demand that it wanted to make on who I understood myself to be. And I could feel that that pushing was antithetical to much of what my family had taught me. But these folks were Christians. And many of the ways that they were trying to shape me, uh, it wasn't, they didn't come to me and say, Ben, we want you to be this kind of person. They said, God wants you to be this kind of person. This is the kind of person God wants you to be. But some of the values, some of the lessons were, again, they were just antithetical to what I had learned in my family growing up. And so uh, one uh, semester, early on in my time at Hope, I was registering for classes. So I'm online, I'm you know, scrolling through the class. It may not even have been online. It may have been, I may have been a part of that last generation that had to go get the registration uh, pamphlet and actually look at the classes on a physical sheet of paper. But I, but I saw a class called Black and Latino Theology. I don't think that I was a religion major yet. I think I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. 
But I was taking religion classes because my faith was such a central part of who I understood myself to be. And I was using it to navigate some of the pressing whiteness that I, had made, that I named just a little bit ago. And so I said, I don't know what that is. I'm not even quite sure what uh, theology is, but I, I read the description of the class. And, uh, and it said that it was going to look at the Christian faith from a perspective grounded in the social and historical experiences of black and Latino people. And I said, I should take that class. And I said I should take that class because I was struggling to reconcile the Christian faith that I'd come to understand with the cultural and, and racial values that shaped Hope College. What I came to understand at Hope for the first time in my life is that racial thinking shapes how we encounter Jesus. Racial thinking shapes how we encounter Jesus. It is not the case uh, that God does not see color. At least that's part of the case that I will uh, try to make with you all this morning as we talk about what black theology is. Black theology helped me understand that I could be Christian and love myself as black in a world that you know, tells me not to make much of that. That I could be a Christian and love myself as black without needing to apologize. And that saved me. So I want to talk a little bit this morning about black theology, some of its development and trends. Mark, will you remind me what time we end? What time do we end? 10.15. Okay. Um, and I will um, talk, and um, so I'll just tell you that the kind of teacher that I am, the kind, of, the kind of classroom space I'm used to is I'll be up here, and I'll be talking, and, and as you all have questions, you should raise your hand, and sometimes I'll go, yes, and other times I'll go, I'll see you. Right? Because I'm like in the middle of something that I'm trying to get out that I've, that I've thought about. Um, so, so, so um, which is to say that this will, I, I, I hope that this is dialogical. Uh, I've got a lot of slides, um, but um, what's more important is our engagement with each other. So, uh, so black theology. Uh, first off, what is it? Let's talk a little bit about what we're going to do today. Uh, first, we're going to um, talk about, I'm sorry that this is uh, small. Those of you in the back may have a really hard time seeing it, but the three points we have are, one is understanding what theology is and how it works, and Marcus helped us get off uh, to, a, to a good start with that, just in the stuff he said about how um, theology always grows out of a particular social and historical context. So we'll talk about that, and then um, uh, I'll sort of introduce black theology in terms of its historical development um, and, and some of, the, some of the, the, the major kind of formative ideas. And then we'll talk about some questions that have created trends in black theology, which is to say we'll talk about sort of where it's at in the academy and, and why I think it's a really important theological perspective uh, for society uh, writ large, especially if you happen to live in the greater St. Louis metropolitan area. I've been here, friends, for almost four years now. And... Um, I'm convinced that God sent me here, uh, though I'm not always happy about it. <laughs> uh, but I'm convinced that God sent me here because I've got this passion for black theology, and St. Louis has a structural commitment to anti-black racism. So um, I'm interested to see what God does with those two things. Okay, so, uh, so to begin, uh, those are our goals for today. So, so to start, what is theology? Uh, comes from some Greek words. The first is theos, which just means God. The second is logos, uh, which is translated different ways, discourse or talk or conversation. Brooklyn, Brooklyn will learn all of this when she gets to seminary. Uh, but their, their um, theology is a way, um, it's often translated talk about God or discourse about God. In Christian theology, this talk about God, these words, speech, or discourse about God, uh, we think that the person of Jesus Christ makes a decisive difference in that talk. This will be important as we, we get into black theology, but I like to state it up front. Uh, when I teach Christian ethics at Eden Seminary, early on in the fall semester, students write a paper, I call it the um, Who Do You Say That I Am paper. I give students an opportunity early on in their time at seminary to answer that biblical question. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's important to do that early on because we all have some way of thinking about the identity of Christ and what that identity means for us. It's been shaped by church teachings, by the things our family has taught us, by the various ways that uh, we've been instructed that God is at work in the world. So I like to have students kind of state what they bring into seminary 
Because inevitably what happens is theological education slowly, carefully, and if you're lucky, you know, graciously and, and somewhat gently deconstructs all of that. So that you can look at who you understand Christ to be in light of the difference that the gospel is supposed to make in the world. So Jesus makes a difference to Christian theology. So let's keep that in mind as we, uh, as we, we keep moving forward. How is theology done? Churches use... Agreed upon sources for doing theology. So this is one of my favorite sort of examples, right? This is from uh, the, e the ELCA's, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America's website. The ELCA's, this might be outdated now, I'm not sure, but the ELCA's official confession of faith identifies the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as a source, the Apostles' Nicene and Athanasian creeds, the Lutheran confessional writings in the Book of Concord as the basis of our teaching. Theology has sources, Right? Theology needs sources. Yes, there, there is Jesus, but very quickly after that, we enter into a long historical uh, uh, record of debates regarding who this Jesus is. And different denominational traditions, let alone different cultural traditions, have various ways of answering this question. But this is how the ELCA does it. They identify clear sources that they use for doing theology in their tradition. You all have your own. In the Baptist church, it's something like the authority of Scripture, Jesus, baptism, and whatever the preacher's feeling that day. Uh, but but, but, there, but, but the, the authority of Scripture for us is a huge deal. So I have a friend who pastors a Baptist church in a state that shall remain nameless, because this is an ongoing controversy. And he's in the midst of, uh, he's got some deacons who think that a church employee should be fired. And so one of the things he's saying is, okay, well, we've got, we need biblical grounds or legal grounds to do this. Right? And so along with the theological uh, framework of a church shaping how it thinks about it, it speaks about it, and the sources that it pulls from, theology is also used to make churches help, to help churches make difficult decisions. So oftentimes when push comes to shove, a church's theology informs what it does and what it does not do. How else is theology done? Theology is always the product uh, thank you, Mark, for this, of a particular social and historical context. Regardless of the sources used, socioeconomic context, that is the places we live, uh, how much, how much uh, access we have to the material stuff that sustains our lives, that stuff shapes how we do theology. And if you don't believe me, just ask our pastor Mike, because he just got back from El Salvador, right? Access, socioeconomic context and access to resources or lack thereof shape how churches do theology just as much as sources like scripture, creeds, and certain traditions. And it should be this way. How we talk about God, what is true about God, ought to grow out of our lived experiences, not just um, the statements of faith of the church. Those statements of faith are, uh, are only true in as much as they, they help us make sense of the lived realities that we have. They're not abstract things that we should, should apply to, our, that we should just apply to our lives and sort of, uh, you know, keep living as we did before. No, Christian faith is supposed to require something of us. And one of the ways that we know that Christian, Christian faith requires something of us is that different social and historical contexts, different socioeconomic contexts, produce very different ways of talking about, of imaging, of remembering the story of Jesus. Prime example of the difference that social and historical context can make, the difference that socioeconomic uh, context can make, the history of black and white churches in America. So I just want to say, this is not a part of this presentation, that I love uh, this space, this room. I love what I felt this morning during worship. All of you folks, different people, clearly from different places, different backgrounds, different ways of speaking, different ways of moving and dressing, kneeling together to receive communion. There is so much power in that practice. Uh, you all should keep doing that. <laughs> because there's a reason that we can speak intelligibly about the history of black and white churches in America, and it's not just because black folks like different music than white folks. Right? The existence of a black church and a white church, which if you just think, if you try to sustain thought on, on those phrases for about 45 seconds, 
You should feel something arrive. The challenge is in America, black and white churches are so old and they become so normalized that it's just how, it's just how most American Christians uh, just sort of, they sort of accept that the shape of Christianity is uh, divided on racial lines. But that division has a whole lot more to do with the social and historical context of the United States than it does with any teachings that are organic to the person of Christ. But this is where the teachings of Christ and our social historical realities come together. And we have to make decisions and proclamations and form teachings that help us to make some sense of that confluence, of our context and what God has done and what God is doing. The black church exists because of, um, this is a, uh, a lecture that I would usually give, but the black church exists because of slavery. We have to start there. The black church in the United States of America is born as an institution, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, in slavery. That is why they exist. Some were created because white churches would not allow blacks to participate in worship on equal footing. Others were created because black folk didn't want to spend Sunday around white folks anyway. But there, you can't talk about in any intelligible, sort of um, consistent and accurate way the existence of black and white churches in America without talking about slavery. It is slavery and the racial logic, the white supremacist logic that buttressed slavery, that supported it, that created the space that now holds black and white churches. And these churches have very different ways, have had very different ways of talking about who God is. So there's a key question at the heart of black theology, um, and I just want to, uh, let me just differentiate real quick between black theology, as we'll be talking about it today, refers primarily, mainly, to uh, an academic discipline that is developed in the late 1960s. But James Cone, who Mark named in, in, inter in introducing me, uh, didn't understand himself to be creating something from scratch. He understood himself to be interpreting his experiences in the black church. Cone grew up, after all, in Bearden, Arkansas, in Jim Crow, Bearden, Arkansas, in the 1930s and 40s, and, and, was, and, and dedicated his entire career, Dr. Cone just passed last year, dedicated his entire career to trying to interpret the gospel in light of the social and historical realities of black suffering. What does the gospel of Jesus mean, after all, in a country that has, as its history, a commitment to blacks being three-fifths of, three of people, that is, um, uh, after they were slaves, blacks being segregated and lynched, blacks being underfunded, stuffed into, uh, into uh, under-supported schools, in cities uh, confined to uh, a poor health care. Um, what does it mean to say that Jesus is Lord and to say that Jesus' lordship is good news in a world where to be black is to be dehumanized. Where to be black is to be less than the ideal. And where those things are not just considered uh, marginal perspectives, but they are central to what it means to be a citizen. This is much of what we're seeing in America right now. Uh, I don't want to delve too deeply into politics, but because I'm talking about black theology, it will be important for me to say that I think uh, that, that the current administration, its existence, has a whole lot to do with racial animus at the heart of who America understands itself to be that we've not dealt with, but that we keep telling ourselves we've made good progress on. Progress is not a theological term. Key question of black theology. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to do with or say to the systemic oppression of black people? It's not that black theology doesn't care about anyone else. It's that if you sit, if you do a deep historical study of what black folk have been through from 1619 to 2019, right? This year we celebrate uh, that uh, 500 years uh, since the first slaves were brought uh, uh, from 
um, from uh, Africa to, to Jamestown, Virginia, 400 years since the first slaves were brought from, uh, from, um, uh, from, James, from Africa to Jamestown, Virginia. From 1619 to 2019, what are the things there? What are the things there that we need to be paying attention to? What is the gospel for these people? The ones that the country has been built on. Historians at this point now agree widely that, uh, that the economy of the United States cannot exist. It does not exist. It has no chance of existing as it currently exists without the free and cheap labor that, uh, that we got from African slavery. No Wall Street. No White House. No railroads. No, well, Asian Americans are eventually going to have a large part to play in that too, right? But, but much, the, the foundation of what becomes the American economy, founded on Native American genocide, which, which is immediately followed up by African slavery. But that's a hard thing to face. How do you repent for 246 years of slavery? Much of which, by the way, is executed, is undertaken, and is defended in the name of God. We have to remember, these were Christians who used appeal to scripture to justify slavery. After all, many argued, without slavery, how would these barbarous Africans ever gain uh, access to the gospel? This is a real argument that's used to justify slavery over and over and over again. Even some of the founding fathers slip into making this argument. Slavery is a really unfortunate practice, but you know without it, there's no hope for them. This logic has to, it needs to become very strange and tragic to us. And we need to uh, learn how to keep track of how it has shaped Christian faith. So, uh, most folks uh, learned about, uh, or, or were introduced to black theology as Barack Obama was running for president the first time. Uh, much of, much of uh, America's um, public uh, was exposed to black liberation theology through a sound clip of the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. You all remember this? Okay, I'm going to play a clip of it because I think it's this, this, uh, this YouTube uh, clip here is, is done very well. I hope you all are able to hear this okay. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible. Prior to Abraham Lincoln, the government in this country said it was legal to hold Africans in slavery in perpetuity. Perpetuity is one of the University of Chicago words. That means forever. From now on, when Lincoln got in office, the government changed prior to the passing of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. The government defined Africans as slaves as property, property, people with no rights to be respected by any whites anywhere. The Supreme Court of the government, same court, granddaddy court of the one that stole the 2000 election, Supreme Court said in its Dred Scott decision in the 1850s, no African anywhere in this country has any rights that any white person has to respect at any place, anytime. That was the government's official position backed up by that was the, the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. That's the judiciary, backed up by the executive branch, that's the president, backed up by the legislative branch, and enforced by the military of the government. But I stopped by to tell you tonight that government changed. Prior to Harry Truman's government, the military in this country was segregated. But governments changed prior to the civil rights and equal accommodations laws of the government in this country. There was back segregation by the country, legal discrimination by the government, prohibited blacks from voting by the government. You had to eat in separate places by the government. You had to sit in different places from white folks because the government said so. And you had to be buried in a separate cemetery. It was apartheid American style from the cradle to the grave, all because the government backed it up again. Guess what? Governments changed under Bill Clinton. We got a messed up welfare to work bill, but under Clinton, blacks had an intelligent friend in the Oval Office. Oh, my government's changed. The election was stolen. 
We went from an intelligent friend to a dumb Dixiecrat, a rich Republican who has never held a job in his life, is against affirmative action, against education, I guess he is, against health care, against benefits for his own military, and gives tax breaks to the wealthiest contributors to his campaign. Governments change sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad. But I'm sitting to help you again. Turn back and say, he's sitting to help us again. Where governments change, write this down, Malachi 3.6. Malachi 3.6, thus saith the Lord. Repeat it after me, for I am the Lord, and I change not. That's the King James Version. The New Revised says, for I, the Lord, do not change. In other words, where governments change, God does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That's what his name, I am, means, you know. He does not change. There is no shadow of turning in God. One songwriter puts it this way. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. God does not change. God was against slavery on yesterday, and God, who does not change, is still against slavery today. God was a God of love yesterday, and God, who does not change, is still a God of love today. God was a God of justice on yesterday, and God, who does not change, is still a God of justice today. Turn to your neighbor and say, God does not change. Where governments lie, God does not lie. Where governments change, God does not change. And I'm through now. But let me leave you with one more thing. Governments fail. The government in this text, comprised of Caesar, Quirinius, Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman government failed. The British government used to rule from east to west. The British government had a union jack. She colonized Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, and Hong Kong. Her navies ruled the seven seas all the way down to the tip of Argentina in the Falklands. But the British government failed. The Russian government failed. The Japanese government failed. The German government failed. And the United States of America government, when it came to treating her citizens of Indian descent fairly, she failed. She put them on the reservations. When it came to treating her citizens of Japanese descent fairly, she failed. She put them in internment prison camps. When it came to treating the citizens of African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America as long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. The United States government has failed the vast majority of our citizens of African descent. So context matters. So what much of the country saw is the very end of that sermon. There's a preacher standing in what looks like a well-populated church saying, God damn America. And this is the pastor of one of the guys running for president. Ah, but if you contextualize the sermon, you understand that that statement, one, is biblically based, 
And two, it's grounded in a social and historical analysis of how America, at the end of the day, uh, mirrors the government that killed Jesus in, in eerily familiar ways. So Jeremiah Wright becomes one of the public symbols of black theology. Black theology is born in the black church. The black church and black theology are necessary because white churches use Christianity to justify the dehumanizing of blacks. In fact, one of the things that makes black theology a very difficult uh, field to be committed to is that we live in a country that has used Christian language to justify enslavement and dehumanization. So when you try to use Christian language uh, to reject those ways of being, often what happens is uh, you are called unchristian. Because the standard of what Christianity is is already set. And it's considered to be uh, something that, that, um, that it's reconcilable with, with racial hierarchy. That is American Christianity. And it has deep roots. This is uh, a catechism from, um, if you can, this is an excerpt from a book called Slave Religion by Alvin Rabbitoh, a fantastic classic text on uh, the history of the black church. Um, but but this, is, this is an excerpt from a catechism uh, given to slaves uh, given to slaves who wanted to become Christians because they were different catechisms for blacks and for whites. This one reads, You declare in the presence of God and before this congregation that you do not ask the holy baptism out of any design to free yourself from the duty and obedience, notice the capitalization of duty and obedience, from the duty and obedience that you owe to your master, notice the capitalization, while you live. I didn't capitalize this. This is the way it was written. Your baptism has nothing to do with your social and political standing. That's, that's what, this is, that's what this, the first part of this is trying to clarify. But merely for the good of your soul, your soul, and to partake of the graces and blessings of promise to the members of the church of Jesus Christ. A Christianity that is okay with the abuse of black bodies as long as their souls are saved. Don't worry about having food in your stomach as long as your soul is saved. Don't worry about having access to education, access to the right to vote, because your soul is saved. And so an emphasis on the soul, separated from bodily realities, becomes one of the fixtures of white American theology. Because if you can get folks to focus on where they're going after they die, to the exclusion of what is happening where they live, well, you've got a religion that can be used to control the, power, the powerless. And that is what the vast majority of white American Christianity has been. With painfully few exceptions. A system of religious belief that generation after generation disciples young white Christians into believing that they are superior and that everything in this country and everything in this world is rightly theirs. So, uh, black theology is born as an academic discipline in 1969. This is the original cover of the first text. A book called Black Theology and Black Power. Some of you were alive during this, this, uh, during, uh, uh, th this movement called the Black Power Movement. And so James Cone uh, earns a, a, a PhD from Garrett Biblical Institute, which is now uh, Northwestern University. It's a, uh, the seminary up at, up at Northwestern. And he's got a PhD in systematic theology, the highest theological degree you can earn in the United States. And he writes a dissertation on uh, one of the most important theologians of the 20th century, a guy named Karl Barth. So Dr. Reverend Dr. Cohn has his Ph.D. in hand, and he moves uh, to a small town uh, called uh, Adrian, Michigan. And he's teaching at a little school in Michigan called Adrian College. And the Detroit riots break out. And here's Cohn, a black man, a theologian, who has spent the last close to 10 years in graduate school, but wasn't assigned, get this, he wasn't assigned a single book by a black author the entire time he was in seminary. He could become a doctor of theology without having to say anything about the history of slavery. And because that was his formation, his theological formation, he felt completely powerless when it came time to speak 
uh, to the realities, to the social realities uh, that were represented in the Detroit uprisings. And he thought for a while about going back to get a second PhD, because that's what we do, uh, we, we scholars do, and we can't figure something out. We think we should just go read more books. Uh, uh, but instead of going back for that second doctorate, he wrote this book. How did he write it? He started combining, along with, with biblical study and the study of the theologians he's read in seminary, he started listening to black music. And not just the spirituals, but also the blues. And he started to read Richard Wright and James Baldwin and Sonia Sanchez and Ralph Ellison. That is, he started to dip into the cultural resources of his people and lift them up as a source of sacred reflection. And he realized that in doing so, he was violating the rules of white American theology. He also realized that as he was doing so, his soul was saved. Cone writes and says, my conversion from being a Negro to being black was perhaps more important than my conversion to Christianity. That is a conversion from being what white people wanted him to be to being one who was committed to the well-being of his people in the name of God was a powerful, powerfully transformative uh, experience for Cohen. So he writes this book in 1969. It's the first sustained theological engagement with the problem of racism in American Christianity. There are other religious texts that sort of engage it in a kind of touch-and-go kind of way. There's a footnote here and a touchstone there. But for the, for the vast majority, until this, the publication of this text in 1969, zero American systematic theologians touched the problem of slavery and racism. That should be really strange and problematic to us because they touch other things. They touch Nazi Germany. They touch World War II. They touch the Civil War, the American Revolutionary War. They're not blind to human tragedy. They're just certain tragedies they don't see. So Cohn develops this theological perspective because if the gospel is going to be a saving source for black people, there has to actually be good news in there. It's not good news that I'm naturally inferior to folks who understand themselves to be white. So he writes this book. Uh, um, Okay, we'll skip that for now. The claim at the center of black theology is that Jesus is black. I had a line that sort of alluded to this um, in, um, in, in the sermon this morning. It's not that Cohn is making an argument for, some, for the biological blackness of Jesus. Instead, he's arguing that when you look at the lived experience of Jesus, he has a lot more in common with a poor black person in America uh, than, than someone who's comfortable in the suburbs of, I don't know, say Clayton or something like that. No, no, no. Jesus... The one we meet in scripture, he's from East St. Louis. He's from the places we don't go. He comes to us and he offers us salvation, even as we are rejecting him. But this is, this is the Jesus that black theology focuses on. And it does so in a couple of ways. Uh, it looks at the birth of Jesus. And if you look at the birth of Jesus through the lens of black theology, we see that God brings Jesus into a world in a way that's familiar to poor blacks. Jesus is not born in a position of power or privilege. And God chooses this. This is important, right? We confess that God chooses the nature of the incarnation. God chooses to bring Jesus into the social context. Again, as I said this morning, it's not just that Jesus comes to us as human. He comes to us as a particular type of human. And God's choosing that context is just as important uh, as God. It's, it's more important, I think, than God's presence. In fact, we don't fully understand God's presence among us if we don't see that God chose a particular social context to send Jesus into. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Jesus is from the hood. Considered by many not to be employable. Not worth wasting the tax dollars on. He doesn't need a quality school. He's too lazy or stupid to read anyway. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. This speaks to uh, uh, the, the, the socially scandalous uh, our relationship that birthed Jesus. Remember, Mary's not married yet. She is pregnant. 
And her fiancé, Joseph, ain't the daddy. So Jesus is not only, doesn't, doesn't only come to us in, this, uh, in this, this societally marginalized context. God doesn't only choose that. But, but, but the, the social situation, the social relationship, the familial unit, is one that society looks down upon. Joseph's quiet divorcing is a gracious act in relationship to Mary. She might have been stoned to death. Jesus is from the hood, and his mama is one of the ones who is not in uh, the type of relationship that folks consider proper. And that's how our Lord comes into the room, comes into the world. Uh, meanwhile, the authorities are already trying to kill him. Herod is looking for Jesus before he is born. There are already structures in place to kill babies like Jesus. Black folk can relate to this. One of uh, the ongoing struggles that me and my fiance have is uh, she, she has um, a 13 and 11 year old from, from a previous relationship and uh, as, as we prepare to, to move them to St. Louis to be with us, we are struggling to figure out where to live because uh, the city of St. Louis doesn't really care that much where black kids go to school. There was no room for him. Jesus is born into a world, into a context that has no room for him. He is rejected before he's even here. Read through the context of black theology, what we find is a Jesus Christ, a story of Jesus that, uh, that black folk can find some, some solidarity in. God didn't just come to be with us in this broad, sort of universal way. God comes to be with black folk in a particular way. Who do you say that I am? Black theology says Jesus is black. Not in an exclusionary way, but in a descriptive way. We can talk more about that in a little bit. The life of Jesus, Jesus' life and ministry, his reason for being is intricately linked to the lives of the foreign oppressed of society. A position black people have been familiar with for all of U.S. history. I recall before that Jesus is anointed because he has been sent to proclaim good news to the poor. I love that this morning's gospel passage says, blessed are the poor. Sometimes it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I love that Luke says, the poor. Because we have a long history of folks trying to take that, blessed are the poor in spirit, and say, oh, you know, God doesn't really care about economic structures that much, right? If you are poor in spirit, I love that Luke says, the poor. The real poor. The folks who can't afford to pay their rent. The folks who are trying to decide between light and heat in the winter. Those folks. Those are the ones Jesus came to bring good news to. What does that mean for the rest of us? This is usually what my students start to ask. If you're starting to ask that, it's okay. <laughs> it's right where you should be. And the death of Jesus. Like many blacks, despite not being found guilty of a crime, Jesus dies because the system allows it and society encourages it. And his blood marks all of society moving forward. In a 2000, and I think it was either 2008 or 2010, uh, uh, Cone's last book, well, he wrote a memoir, but, but his last sort of uh, text uh, is a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, where he does a historical and theological examination of lynching as a social practice in the United States, a way of controlling black people, right? And, lynch, and, and the crucifixion as a way of, uh, of controlling the masses in, in, in Roman society. And what Cone finds, and I think argues quite persuasively, is that both are tools used to keep the masses in check. The bodies are left hanging there as a reminder to others who might step out of line. Jesus, of course, is not the first cross, and he wasn't the last. And so when black folks sing about uh, Jesus being hung on a tree, there are more than just theological parallels. For those familiar with the history, there are social and historical parallels that make the incarnation a real thing, that deepen the intimacy uh, between day-to-day -day lived experience in America and communion with Christ. And resurrection. As resurrection represents the power of God over death, the tradition of black protests and resistance after, lynch after lynchings and despite beatings, as police brutality continues, all of these things represent the refusal to allow death to speak the final word. 
And there is biblical precedent for this. Look at my hands, Jesus said. Look at my feet as he was resurrected. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see me. Right? Think of uh, the classic novel by Ralph Ellison, An Invisible Man, right? This insistence on being touched and being seen that the black body is not just a thing that is killed and killable. Ghosts do not have flesh and bones. The power of resurrection in black theology has everything to do with, with whatever the power is that encourages poor people who have no way of winning a military fight, who have no way of, of, out, of outpowering the police, but, but when they stand up and say, we will not be quiet while you do that to us. We will not be quiet while you kill our daughters and our sons. We will not remain quiet while you shove us in school systems that the city won't support. We will not be quiet as you pursue a merger of the city and the county that leaves poor people invisible. We will not be quiet. That insistence, whatever that power is that, that encourages poor people to stand up for themselves against overwhelming odds, that is the power of resurrection. Okay, so um, I've got some more slides. Uh, but I've also said a lot, and so I wonder if there are questions in the room. Yes, please. So I was struck by that thing that you showed where it was a separate captain for black people. Yeah. So, so just to be clear, right, um, uh, I, talked about, I talked about the fact that Cohen has written that his uh, conversion from being a Negro to being black, right, that is from being what white folks wanted him to be, quiet and staying in his place, to being one who was willing to stand up uh, and, and interpret the gospel in light of what is best for, for, for black people who are oppressed, right? That is an active choice, uh, which is to say... Um, it is a, it's a type of conversion that one consciously undertakes. So what Cohn is not saying is that all people with black skin understand the, the, the power of the gospel and live into it. What he is saying, and this is akin to the gospel reading from this morning, is that uh, when you are poor and when you are oppressed, uh, you tend to have a much easier time seeing the jewels tucked away in the gospel than folks who are rich and uh, feel uh, very confident in their ability to protect themselves. So it's not, it's, it's certainly the case, in, right? So, so Cohn, at first he's, he's writing um, because he wants white theologians and white church people um, to see that the gospel that they've been teaching and interpreting and taught to teach and interpret uh, is, is corrupted in some, in some really deep ways. But then he quickly realizes, as he's finishing that first book, right, he quickly realizes that he's got to also speak to many African Americans who think that if they speak up, uh, or better yet, who know that if they speak up, uh, they could lose what they, the little they already have. So there's some real fear there, and it is passed down. It is passed down. It's a, it's a learned listen. When I, I was taught early on, when I got my first summer job at 14, I was taught by many of the, I was raised by a lot of black women, by many of the women and men who shaped me. These folks are always and already looking for a reason to fire you. Be early. Don't ask too many questions. Keep your head down and do what they tell you to do. That's right. That's right. He doesn't know that have anything. That's right. He's talking about how anything to live. And 
Yeah. Yeah, I, th- and I, think, I think you're right. I think that the terrifying thing is that that statement shows that Trump does see it. He does see it. What do you have to lose? You're, you're doing pretty bad already. He sees something, but his answer comes from the gospel of white American Christianity. Look, we are superior. You might as well put your hope behind me. I'll, I'll, I've got crumbs will fall from my table for you. But the gospel in black theology does something radically different and radically important. It says, God comes to those who are at the bottom. And if you want salvation, that's where you need to be. Not just that that's where you need to uh, commit charity. That's where your, your, your charitable donation should go. No, to follow Jesus, it's an invitation to come with him to the hood. And to, yes, yes, my brother, please. So I, I have some really good points, and, and you mentioned something that was really powerful, the fact that you have to want, you have to see that you, you know, there are better systems out there that you should try to attain and achieve. And I'm wondering, for Dr. Cohn, for example, yes. how there was reconciliation between um, his waking up and becoming black, mm-hmm. but also the fact that yeah. Right? And so, you know, there's a process of becoming woke. Yeah. But there's also the immediate need to not die. Yeah. Right? And so, like, there are a lot of black folks out there that struggle with, like, the day-to-day. And so what does, what does this theology say for them as far as, like, their imminent needs? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, so, so Cone is a, Cone's a theologian. He's not a social ethicist. Which is to say uh, that he's not as focused on addressing and coming up with uh, positive prescriptions for uh, social and structural realities that beset folks, right, who, who live in, in, an, in an unequal society. Um, I do think that there are important um, moral and ethical ramifications that grow out of Cone's thought. I'm working on some of that in some research and writing that I'm doing now. But, but, but I, so, so to speak more directly to your question, I'll say this. Cone looks at the life of Jesus... As, uh, as exemplary, right? This is, this is the life that folks are called to. This is the life that we are called into, right? Um, yes, there are these immediate existential needs. And there is the challenge of the gospel uh, that reminds us that if we sell out our desire to be free and to be equal for the crumbs, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be strategic, but that if we sell out our desire to be free and to be treated as full human beings for the crumbs, um, that's, a, that's another type of existential decision, right? That's the opposite of what it means to, to, to follow Jesus. Uh, for, for, for most folks, Cohen is writing for folks who, they are hungry, and they've been hungry. And they've come to understand uh, that their hunger will not be changed by being polite and being pragmatic and voting when the election rolls around, right? And so Cone will say things like, um, he will look at things like, uh, like riots, for example, and uh, just see that as a manifestation of God's justice in the world. If hungry people are stealing food in a nation that throws away enough food every year to keep them full, the stealing of that food is not a crime, right? So, so, so part of what... Part of what Cone does then is he, he, um, he answers your question with uh, some theological framing, right? Um, he wants us to rethink what sin is. Sin is not the stealing of the food by the hungry family. It's the creation of the unjust structure, right? So, so the challenge becomes um, n- not just um, how do we sustain ourselves, because as you know, the folks who are asking those questions have been asking those questions. It becomes... It becomes um, Christian discipleship becomes an invitation to be free. Uh, um, my grandfather used to say, um, uh, and he helped me understand, uh, uh, that he would, he would say sometimes when he was frustrated with the way things were going at work, he would say, uh, these white people can't make me do nothing but stay black and die. Now that doesn't, change the fact that he was, you know, being unjustly treated on his job because he was black. Doesn't change the fact that he was underpaid. But black theology insists that there actually is something more important than just our physical, our individual physical lives. 
that testifying to the power of a spirit that resists. And that even, and this is the scary part that we American Christians don't like, even our willingness to dedicate our lives to that cause, to give it all, is an invitation to Christian discipleship. This is usually where my students go, Professor Sanders, that's unrealistic. We have no way of, of, of winning, of sustaining ourselves. But this, is, this was precisely uh, Dr. Cohn's point. The, the point is not that we go out and we seek death. The point is that in a system that already serves us death, um, we can exist in a different relation to the powers that be. Does that speak some to your question? Yes, sir. I think that that's a very good connection to make. Howard Thurman's classic statement and Jesus and the disinherited, right? Who is Jesus for those who live with their backs against the wall, right? The wall's already there. The wall's already there, right? And there's something, um, uh, Dr. Cohn would often remind us that there is something freeing. It's ironic, right? But he wrote something, it said something like, um, the irony of the Christian gospel is that oppression is the opposite of liberation. That is, and liberation is what the gospel is about. Oppression is the opposite of liberation, but only the oppressed are truly free. So there's a paradox there, and this is an important part of uh, Cohn's thought in particular, right? He, he remains committed to paradox. And one of the, one of the problems, I think, with, with much of white American Christianity is Christianity has at its heart a paradox. God becomes human. What do you mean? That's a divine mystery, right? Cone is he's faithful to this paradox in the name of liberation. Right? So, so um, so so the, the ways in which um, the the oppressed are the are, are closer to what it they have a, a, a better under a better chance of understanding what it means to be free because they are oppressed. And so when Jesus says in the gospels, Woe to you who are rich, for you've gotten your consolation already. He's speaking to a spiritual, to an existential reality that, that most of us, because we live in such a rich nation, we just have a hard time holding space for in our minds. We think that the call of Jesus is an unrealistic one. And in terms of U.S. politics, it may be. But it's the call of Christ. The faith that even if it costs you, even when it costs you, uh, there is something about being committed to being with those who do not have, as Jesus was committed to being with those who do not have, that has the power to save and transform the world. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. So, um, part of my job is to make sure that Ben can get uh, his robe on in time to get into the pulpit. <laughs> so, uh, next week... Uh, we've published something that we're actually going to put on hold uh, because Joseph Russ from Christosol happens to be in town next week. And so we're going to invite Joseph Russ to come talk about the global school at Christosol uh, and a chance that you'll have to come down to El Salvador if you'd like either this June with us or in a couple of years. Um, but come and hear Joseph Russ at 9.15 next Sunday. Uh, I want to say just by way of conclusion it's always wonderful to have somebody who's an ordained professor come and do both the adult forum and the sermon uh, because it seems to me that somebody who's got the title, uh, the Reverend Doctor, is always sort of putting one foot in one place and one foot another. Sometimes you're teaching and sometimes you're preaching and thanks for doing both at the same time. Will you help me thank the Reverend Dr. Ben Sanders? We hope to see you next week, and if you haven't yet, I hope you hear Ben preach in just a few moments. Thanks, y'all. Uh, if you have, uh, I'm always aware that in these, these moments, uh, I, I push a lot of buttons that, that run deep, and they should run deep.
And so I always like to remind y'all that uh, I'm at Eden Seminary, bsanders at eden.edu, and I welcome this conversation, uh, ongoing conversations and, uh, with folks from all the places that I teach uh, as an expression of my own commitment to ministry. So thank you for letting me be with you this morning, and I look forward to changing St. Louis with you all. Thank you.